0: Luke chapter 8, we'll finish out chapter 8 today. And so turn there. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, We want you to have your own Bible there. So ushers are coming down the aisle now. And while you're turning, I'm actually going to start a little different today. I'm going to start by sharing with you a verse that is kind of near and dear to my heart. It's not from Luke. We'll get to Luke in just a minute. No, this is one of the very first verses that I committed to memory when I was a young man. Early on in the faith, 16 years old, my youth pastor came to me and he said, Adam, I'll make you a, a, a deal. For every verse that you commit to memory, I will buy you 49er flapjacks at Original Pancake House. And I thought, this is brilliant. This is the greatest idea I've ever heard. I memorized 14 verses in 14 weeks. I'm not even kidding. And I, and I had amazing breakfast. And this verse is one of the one of the very first ones that I memorized, and maybe you'll recognize it. You don't have to turn there. It comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Have you heard this? It goes like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus... The founder and the perfecter of our faith. I love that phrase. I'm gonna leave that up so you can just hover over that because that is a bit of a it's a bit of a headline for where we're headed today. This idea of Jesus being not just the founder of our faith, but the perfecter of our faith. Whoa. The whole verse is about faith, chapter 12. Verse 1 is a, is, picks up where the writer of Hebrews had left in 11 where the writer of Hebrews talks about faith and he, he gives us a log of all these Old Testament characters who modeled faith. And then he turns the chapter to 12 and he says, now you run your race and how will you run your race? You've got to look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. That word founder could also be the word author or originator. It's this idea of Jesus is writing a story, and in that story, he he blesses people with faith. But not only is he the author of faith, he's the one who brings that faith to completion. Not only is Jesus the, the founder of your faith, Jesus is the one who has the ability and the desire to perfect it. What an idea. Did you know, River West, that when it comes to your faith, Jesus is kind of a perfectionist. He's a perfectionist. He's a little bit obsessed with your faith, okay? He has this mission, this agenda. What is it? He he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants to press and move and 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 perfect and and do this work that only he can do to bring you to some kind of completion in your faith. When I think of this verse, I think of Jesus as an artist who's just a perfectionist. You know, have you ever watched an artist and, as they create and they're just not quite satisfied yet? I'm married to an artist and she's a perfectionist too. And you think, how did you slip through that? I have no idea, but that's not, anyway. And I watch her, I'll watch her paint and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. I'll come down into her studio and there she is and there's an easel with a painting and I think it looks amazing but she looks really disturbed and she's looking and she's squinting and sometimes she'll stare for like a half an hour. She'll walk away. She'll come back and then, and then in a moment she'll pick up a brush and she'll just add one stroke and then she'll go, ah. Oh. And I'm like, <laughs> That's like Jesus, but with you and with your faith. If you're the piece of clay, Jesus is the sculptor. He's got out his blade and sometimes he's applying pressure and sometimes he's carving and cutting. If you're the canvas, Jesus is the painter. There he is. He's painting a masterpiece, and, but he's never quite satisfied with where you are. Because he knows something. He knows your faith is so important. Your faith is what's connecting you to his power, his grace for salvation, healing. So Jesus couldn't care more about anything in the world. Isn't that great? This morning in our study of Luke, we're going to be introduced to two people who both run to Jesus in faith. The first is a man whose daughter is on the brink of death. And the second is a woman who's been suffering from a very private and painful situation. But what these two characters have in common is that unbeknownst to them, Jesus is at work behind the scenes, carving and painting and perfecting and bringing about a beautiful masterpiece. We look at it with me, Luke chapter 8 is where we go. We're going to work through this amazing story together a little bit briefly and then I'm going to draw out some principles for you. Here's what happened next. Luke Luke chapter 8, I'm picking up in verse 40. Here's what happened next. Now, When Jesus returned, and that's him returning from the other side of the Sea of Galilee where he had encountered the demoniac, now he's coming back. When he returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Character number one is a desperate man. He's desperate because his daughter's on the brink of death. Luke tells us he was a prominent man. He had status. He was the ruler of the synagogue, which means he ran the local worship center. He would have assigned the readings and he would have organized everything. So this would have been a prominent person, but none of his prominence, none of his status, none of his power or prestige Could help him now because now he finds himself in a situation that's brought him to his knees. It's a desperate situation. He has one daughter. She's 12. And she's going to die. And so what does he do? He runs to Jesus in faith. Luke doesn't tell us what her condition is, but we know that it's time sensitive. So there's this sense of urgency. And Jairus says... Lord, hurry, can you come home with me? I bet he felt hope in that moment when he realized Jesus is actually going to come with me, but it was a hope that was mixed with a bit of urgency. We've got to hurry. This is time sensitive. And so they, they head off. That's character number one. Character number two. Look at it with me. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Character number two is a woman who's desperate too. And she's living with something that's very isolating, very private, very, very dislocating. When Luke describes her condition as a discharge of blood, did you see that? That phrase shows up throughout the Old Testament. And everywhere it shows up, that phrase describes menstruation. All right? So this was almost certainly some kind of a uterine bleeding problem. And let me be honest with you, this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible does not hold back the punches. The Bible's like, we're going to talk to people about real life and a real world and real situations, even situations that are a little bit sensitive. Isn't that great? And here we have a very sensitive situation. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you would know that this kind of a condition would have meant that she was for 12 years ceremonially unclean she would have been unable to participate in anything like this she would have been unable to participate in religion and services so she was isolated think about it unbelievable this week i was in the car with my wife and my wife is such a blessing she's so wise and she has and i will often sort of process stuff with her that i'm studying and and run stuff by her and i I said, hey, Kathy, what do you think about this? Like, you know, get me inside of this woman's head. What would this have been like? Because I can't, I can't really understand this, right? So get me inside of her heart. What would she have been feeling? And here's what Kathy said. It was amazing. She thought about it, and she said, well, she said, I have never met a single woman who enjoys menstruation. <laughs> I was like, okay, hold on. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep talking. <gasps> okay. She says I've never met anyone. Now, take that something that's very private, very vulnerable, extremely uncomfortable, painful, horrible. Now take that and stretch that out every single day for 12 years as I give you a little bit of what she's going through. I was like, thank you. Amazing. She was desperate. And actually, if you look, Luke tells us, not only was she suffering, but she spent all of her money. She exhausted her resources on physicians. Mark adds an interesting detail. He says not only had she spent all of her money, but in the process of spending all that money, Mark says she suffered greatly at the hands of many physicians. It's this idea that sometimes when you're actually trying to find a cure to something, even the process of your treatments creates additional suffering. You know, have any of you ever experienced that? You're trying to find a cure, and even in that process, it's painful and brutal, and people are poking and prodding, and especially when you consider the fact that this would have been more of an ancient, ancient medicine. This was probably an extremely painful suffering condition. Sometimes the cure brings just as much suffering as the disease, right? Right? My mother-in-law, bless her heart, I love her. She's really into sort of um, outside-the-box medical medical things, you know, um, sort of, you know. Uh, so every time I go over there, she's always got a new lotion or something. And I, I've learned to never tell her that I, there's anything wrong with me because she'll rub something on my neck. I'm like, what was that? I have no idea. And uh, so uh, I learned from my mother-in-law about something called cupping therapy. Have you ever heard of cupping therapy? I hadn't. I, I learned about this by experience, by the way, from my mother-in-law because I was in, I was in her living room and I was like, oh, my, my shoulders are killing me. And she was like, hold on. And she went in and she got this box. She brought out this box and she opened it and it had all of these glass suction cups Okay, and I'm like, this. Wait a minute, what's, where's this going? And she proceeded to place these suction cups on my neck. And cupping therapy, how it works is they, you put the cup on the on a tender spot of the skin, and then you warm it up, and it will draw your skin up into the cup. I have a picture just to really freak you out. Okay. <laughs> By the way, that's not me. I just want to warn. That's not me. That's some <laughs> other poor fool. But anyway, okay. That's David Phelps, I think. But anyway, so it, it, the skin goes up in there and then, and then you pull the, the suction cup off and then this is what you look like afterwards. And that's what I looked like. I looked like Neil from Matrix after all the hoses pop off and it's like, ah. Anyway, please, but that, That's horrible. When I left my mother-in-law's house, my neck still hurt, by the way, and now I had all these scars, okay? Sometimes the cure causes just as much suffering as the disease. And here we have, now think about this for a minute. We have a woman who has suffered for 12 years. She spent everything. She's exhausted her resources. She's had doctors Treat her unsuccessfully. She suffered and suffered and suffered. And now you can understand why she would want this situation to be private. You get it? Put yourself in her shoes. There's the crowd. There's Jesus. People are wanting to get as close as Jesus as they possibly can. Many people rubbing shoulders, bumping into Jesus. She sees an opportunity. Maybe she lived in this village, probably. She looks, she's heard about Jesus. She says, I've got an opportunity. Oh, if I could just get through that crowd and maybe, just maybe, if I could reach my hand through. I imagine her trying to peer around one, two, three people, stretching her arm out. She grabs a hold of the fringe of his garment, which most scholars believe would be a tassel that would hang from the garment. She says, if only I could just touch the very fringe, maybe, maybe I could be healed. And Luke says, the moment she touches that tassel, immediately, do you see it? Luke says, immediately, the flow of blood ceased. Unbelievable. Um, Immediately, (laughs) immediately. Like as immediately as the wind and the waves ceased when Jesus stood at the front of a boat and said, be quiet. That's how immediately 12 years of bleeding stopped. And I bet she could tell. I bet she felt it. I bet tears started to stream down her face. Amazing. She walked away, weeping with joy. So right now, at this point in the story, it's all good news. The woman is healed. She's on her way. Jairus has Jesus, a captive audience. They're hustling home. But what's going to happen is that Jesus has a different agenda for these two people. He has a slightly different goal. Will you look at it? We left off at verse 45. What happened next? Jesus said, who was it that touched me? I think he stopped dead in his tracks, okay? I think he stopped and everyone stopped with him. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, "Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace." Amazing, amazing story. In a minute, I'm gonna tell you why Jesus is pursuing this woman. What's he doing? But first, I wanna actually take you right now into the head of Jairus. What is Jairus thinking in this moment? I mean, think about it. As Jesus begins to slow his roll, okay, Jairus is like, wait a minute, what's happening here? We're, we're on a mission. This is time sensitive. Why are we slowing down right now? Peter says, Jesus, people are are constantly touching you. And I bet Jarus is like, yeah, what what he said, let's keep, let's keep going here. But Jesus has a different agenda. He has a different motive. Imagine what that would have been like for Jairus the sense of angst the the drop in his stomach why are we stopping why are we why are we taking time on a situation that's clearly not critical when my situation is critical why are we why are we pausing to talk to someone who has been healed when i've got a situation at home with a daughter who's not been healed and it's time sensitive Tim Keller, he, he uses the word malpractice. He says, this would have been like malpractice, right? If you were in an emergency room and a doctor treated someone with a non-critical situation and allowed someone who was in critical condition to die, that doctor would be sued. And Jairus must be thinking, what's happening here? We have got to hurry. But Jesus has got an agenda. He's doing something here for both of these characters. Now, what's amazing is that in this delay, Jairus' worst fears come true. Exactly what he was trying to avoid. It's in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear. This is amazing. Can I I actually suggest one more thing? When those friends of Jairus showed up and said, Hey, don't trouble the teacher, your daughter is dead. Do you know what I think Jairus felt for the first time in this story? I think he was angry. I think he was angry. I think he was thinking, "Jesus, what the heck? What was that?" <laughs> if you had done this on on my timeline, this would not have happened and I and have you ever felt that? I have. And it sort of bubbles up and you realize I'm actually I'm actually kind of angry. Amazing. Jesus can tell. He says Jairus, "Wait a minute. I think he's like Make eye contact with me, Jairus. Make eye contact. Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said to them, do not weep for she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now this story is a masterpiece. And I'm going to say something I've said many times. Luke it does not waste a single stroke of the pen, okay? Every part of this story is intentional, and every part of the story is for you and I to enter into this. The two characters, what I want you to realize is these two characters are protagonists, all right? They are models of faith, They have faith. But like all protagonists, they're they're flawed. So what Luke is showing us, he's saying, look, faith is there and it's genuine, but it's it's imperfect. They're like embers of faith and Jesus wants to fan that faith into a full flame. It's faith that's diluted. It's faith that's adulterated. There's something that needs to be repainted or carved away or cut or pressed or pushed. Why? Because Jesus is the perfecter of faith. Isn't it interesting that to both of them, to both Jairus and to the woman, when Jesus says something to them, he he talks specifically about their faith. Isn't that interesting? To the woman, he says, it was your faith that healed you. Go in peace, daughter. And to Jairus, he says, Jairus, do not fear. Only believe. Only believe. Jesus has an agenda. Brothers and sisters, can I, can I suggest something to you this morning? Is it possible that this same Jesus, who's sovereign Lord, there he is, totally in control of the circumstances, He's at work behind the scenes. They don't know what he's doing, but he does. Sovereign Lord of the universe, at work behind the scenes. Why? To to shape and sculpt and press and complete and perfect faith. Is it possible that that same Christ is at work today in our world and in your life? Your life. Not just your neighbor. You. He loves you. He's concerned about you. He's watching your faith and going, I love this child. I want to press. I want to carve. I want to sculpt. I want to move. So important. So what was the problem? What was the problem with each of these? Jairus and the woman. Could we identify it? I think we could. I'll start with the woman and then I'll talk about Jairus. When you study the commentaries every commentator agrees that there was something superstitious about her faith. Okay? That's the word I want you to think about. It was it was a, it was faith but it was it was sort of a superstitious faith. You know what I mean by that? In her culture it was very common to think that if you had a holy person power could be transferred through a garment or something that they wiped their nose with or and it was this idea it was very superstitious with this idea that i can actually get just a little bit of that power if i if i just if i if i get a touch and this is this is this woman's faith she's thinking i don't i don't necessarily want the person i just want a little bit of his power so it's faith but it's man it's it's superstitious There she is. She's reaching her hand through, and she's thinking, I just, I want to just get a little tiny jolt. And then I want to walk away. And Jesus knows something. If I let her walk away, here's the problem. If I let her walk away, there is so much that she will miss from this interaction that is the purpose of faith. It's superstitious. A couple years ago, I, I went to Israel, and it was an amazing trip, and I loved it, and I got to go to a bunch of the... I spent time at the Sea of Galilee, I went to Jerusalem. Amazing. It was amazing to see historical sites, to realize our faith is historical, and one of the places that we went is, uh, uh, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, all right? This church is beautiful. It's ancient. It's right in the Christian district of Old Town Jerusalem. And the belief is that this church is actually built on top of two of the most sacred spots of the Christian faith. So the belief is that it's built on top of Skull Hill or Golgotha where Christ was crucified. And then also within the church is the belief that the original tomb where Christ was laid is inside this ancient building. And the the history is a little muddy. It's not entirely certain that this site is the actual place where Jesus was crucified and then buried. It goes back to Constantine when he came to Christ and he sent an entourage to Jerusalem to try to find it. And it's, it's muddy. But the point is that what's happened over time is that this has become almost like a almost like a, a, a Mecca for Christians where they go. But there's a, what I experienced was, that there was there's a little bit of weirdness about it. I mean, you walk into a, a building that, and that's all it is, is a building with rock. But you almost get the sense that there are people who are there who think, I can get a little bit of power by being here. It's interesting. I remember there was a guy who had a duffel bag I don't know how he did this. I don't know how he got away with it, but he came in with a duffel bag and he opened his duffel bag and he started pulling out these little figurines that he had and he started setting them down on this stone that some believe was where Jesus was laid and he puts these figurines down and I remember thinking, what is this, what is he doing? And I turned to my friend Brad and I was like, what is this? And he was like, okay, this guy, he sells those back in his home country and what he now can do is he can go back and say, hey, These are worth a lot because they've got a little bit of the resurrection of power of Jesus going on. And he'll probably make a pretty good living on that, right? But it's it's this it's this transactional, superstitious kind of a faith. And here's what we do. Okay? We look at that and we go, Yeah, that's ridiculous. Or we look back in history and we go, yeah, that's superstitious. We we don't have any of that. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you sure? It's very subtle. It can creep in, you don't even know it, you know? This maybe more of this transactional way of relating. I've had I've had moments in ministry where I'll I'll get to the end of a week or I'll get to the end of a sermon and go, "Man, that just totally flopped," right? And if I sometimes I'll catch myself thinking, "You know, maybe I blew it this week. Maybe I was disobedient. Maybe I was in sin and maybe God's like punishing me for that. Have you ever thought like that? Like, why are things going so bad? Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm in sin. Or, or, or the reverse, you know, I've been really well behaved. It's going to be a great day, right? I had my quiet time. God's going to bless me. People are going to come to Christ because I'm going to just, and, and we turn, what we do is we can turn faith into sort of this, it's a little bit superstitious. It's sort of like God's up there handing out demerits or rewards based on what I do. But is that the gospel? That's not the gospel. Gospels, I'm saved by grace, and everything that I get is a gift of God's grace, and God's not petty. And here's the problem Jesus knows I can't just let her walk away because she's going to walk away thinking it was her finger that saved her. But it wasn't her finger, it was her faith. She's going to walk away thinking it was the garment that brought the power, but it wasn't the garment. It was my grace. Jesus knows your faith is what connects you to the power and the grace. And so Jesus says, I need to pursue her. I can't let her walk away. And so he calls her out, daughter, it's very personal. It's like, daughter, come back. Come back. How about you? Is it possible that Jesus is at work? Behind the scenes, pressing just a little bit, cutting just a little bit. That's the woman. What about Jairus? What was the problem with his faith? Well, if you look back with me at Jairus, here's here's what I want to suggest this morning. I want to suggest that Jairus had a controlling kind of faith. It was faith... Yes, but the ember was there. But it, but it was it was a faith where Jairus always sort of had a little bit of control over what was going on. You know what I mean by that? Like a controlling faith. It's that kind of faith where you're like, I I believe, but there's like a little asterisk, right? I totally have faith, but it's faith with a caveat. It's it's faith with a little bit of a limitation. It's faith where I always maintain just a little bit of control. You say, I thought the problem was fear. Jesus said, don't fear. Well, that is the problem. Fear is the problem, but think about this. What is the main cause of fear in our lives? The main cause of fear is when we start to realize we're losing control of what's happening. I start to feel out of control. What's the first emotion I feel? Fear. This is what's happening to Jairus. Jairus came to Jesus for a healing, not a resurrection. (laughs) A resurrection was a little more than he bargained for. I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't that interesting? He came to Jesus thinking, I I just need to have enough faith so that I can get Jesus to my house before my daughter dies. But think about this. Who's ultimately still in control in that moment? Jairus is. Jairus is in control. And Jesus says, Jairus, I need to create a delay because for some reason in your head you think, that I'm only the God of healing, not a God of resurrection. It's like you've got your life carved out, and here's the part of your life where you'll totally trust me. But what about this part? What about this part? You say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you with my time. I trust you with my talent. But I don't quite trust you with my finances. I'm gonna worry the heck out of those, all right? I'm gonna control those. I'm gonna manipulate those. I'm gonna worry about it. Jesus, is like, really? Is that gonna go well for you? I trust you, Jesus, with my friendships and all those relationships out there, but I don't trust you with my marriage. I'm gonna control that and worry about that. I'm gonna manipulate that a little bit, <laughs> right? I trust you, Jesus, with stuff at work, but I don't trust you with my kids. And Jesus is like, I can't, I need to press. I need to push. I need to get Jairus to realize that the very same power that I would use to heal his daughter, there's no difference. It's the same power that I would bring to raise his daughter from the dead, but for some reason he has his life carved out. And then you say, what about me? Is there a little bit of, I think we're all like Jairus. Let's be honest, okay? We're all like that a little bit. We we want to maintain some control, and the problem is, what happens when you begin to realize I'm losing control? See, that's when fear floods in. And Jesus says, "Fear." The problem with fear is it's it's like kryptonite to your faith. I love it. He, I think Jesus is looking at Jairus, and he's like, "I see what's happening here." He's like, "Jairus, look at me. Look at me. Do not fear." I know you just got some really bad news, but wait a minute. I'm still here. I'm still Lord. Do not fear. Keep believing. Keep believing. Why would he do that? Because he loves him. He loves him. And he loves you. Okay, so now you say, well, how would I know? Like, How would I know the areas in my life where I've got a controlling faith Here's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you something really practical. This is a way that I have learned how to pray. I didn't make this up. I learned it from a mentor, but this is a, a way of praying. It's very simple, and it comes in two steps, and they both involve your hands. Step one, you begin with your hands up. In fact, will you do this with me? We just take your hands out and hold them up? And I, I'm, I, I think this will be a blessing in your life, all right? things are tough things are stressful you're 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 afraid you're you're losing control what do you do you say okay i'm going to pray about this you sit down you get centered you put your hands up and you try to figure out what is it that i'm trying to hold on to right now what is that thing you almost always figure it out you're praying you're listening and you're like okay it's this one thing or It's these five things, or 30. There's usually 30, right? And then you think about that. And then here's what you do the next step you identify it, you name it, and then you turn your hands over and do that. You just turn your hands over, exhale, and say, Jesus, I'm giving that over to you. I'm giving over control. I choose faith. I've been trying to control that. How's that going? Not that great. <laughs> so I'm turning it over. And then now you're here, and then you start to realize, wait a minute, I still feel a little nervous. I still feel a little tied up. Okay, put your hands back up and try it again. There's something. There's got to be something else. And then you figure it out, and then you give it over. to And you just keep doing that, okay? And you'll be doing that until next Sunday. You'll come in next Sunday, right? Because that's how we're wired, okay? River West, can I... I'm being most sincere when I tell you that Jesus is doing these things because he loves Jairus. He loves this. He wants a relationship with her and he wants a relationship with you. So I want to share one last thing and then we're going to go to the table together. I want to take you to the end of the story. We look at verses 52 to 54 and let me point out something that's really odd about this passage. It is odd that when Jesus shows up at Jairus' house, he says to the people who are mourning, hey, she is not dead. She's sleeping. And the reason that this is odd is that she actually is dead. And everyone knows that she's dead, including Jesus. Because it tells us later that her spirit returned when he healed her. Mourners would never show up prematurely. This girl is dead. The mourners know it. Jesus knows it. So, why would Jesus say this? Why would he walk up and say, Hey, she's not dead. She's sleeping? What's the meaning? The answer, I think, happens in what Jesus does next, which is remember, Luke never wastes a moment. What does Jesus do next? Get inside the room. He walks into the room. The only people that he brings are her parents and three of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He walks into the room. He sits down. He grabs her by the hand. And he only says two words. In the Greek, it's really clear. Look at your Bible. It's right there in verse 54. He says two words. He says, child, arise. The word child is exactly what it sounds like. It's just a very, it's a very personal pet name for a young kid. It's, it's exactly what a mom or dad would say to their kid. And the word arise means exactly what it sounds like. It's not the word be resurrected. It's not rise from the dead. It's it's wake up. Jesus grabs her by the hand. It's this tender moment. He says, Child, arise. He says, Exactly what a mom or dad would say when you go into the room to wake up one of your kids. And what's the meaning? The meaning is this. For Jesus, raising someone from the dead takes just as much energy as it would take for you to wake up your sleeping child. That's how powerful he is. Now you're thinking, you've never tried to wake up my child, okay? It actually is like raising the dead. (laughs) Wake up! Okay, so the analogy breaks down. But the point still remains. The point still remains. Here is Jesus Christ, creator, eternal, son of the living God. And let me tell you something. He's standing in the room with a little girl who is dead. But for him, raising her from the dead is like waking someone from sleep. And not only that, not only is there power in it, there's tenderness and there's love. There's love. And this is why we go to the table every week. That's why we go to the table, because can I tell you something? Your faith will never be perfect. It will never be completed until your faith takes you all the way to the God who has the power to raise the dead. If it's not faith in the resurrection, it's not faith. If it's not faith in a God who enters the tomb, dies for human sin, and rises from the dead, it's not Christian faith. It's not gospel faith. That is the ultimate direction of my faith. God, you have the power to raise the dead. You did, and you will Raise us from the dead someday soon, I hope. We'll be given new resurrection bodies. That is our Christian hope. That's why Jesus cares so much about your faith. That's why he's after you. That's why he loves you. I'm going to pray about that. Invite the worship team to come. you by your heads with me. Lord, we need so much to hear from you. Father, will you wake us up from our slumber? Will you carve out our hearts this morning from any dead wood? Would you open our eyes to see this morning the true reality of Christ? And God, in your grace, would you make us aware of places in our life where our faith needs to be perfected a little bit today because you love us, and we want to grow. We want to be people of faith. We want to be a church of faith. We want to be passionate and joyful and deeply connected to Christ, his power and his grace, recognizing your faith is a gift to us. You're the founder of it, and you're the perfecter of it, and so we say thank you, and we love you. I know there are some who came in today carrying a heavy burden something that, that they were holding onto on their own, not trusting you, and, you're, and I think you're very gently and lovingly saying, I want you to let go of that. Leave that at the foot of the cross this morning. Walk away. Give me, give me control over your life. If that's you, would you, in this time of worship and prayer and communion, would you give your heart to Christ again? We love you, Lord, and we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said Amen.